about. But the main thing is, as I said, it's a book that psychologists and counselors should read. However, if you read the book yourself, you don't have to go to a counselor or a psychologist. <laughs> and that's what I want to think, because it's all here. So just skip the counselors like I was and all those psychology people and just read the book. And then you'll, you'll, you'll cure yourself. I'm I like that. You'll That's going to raise. I mean, Mark is going to one of the fundamental questions. I want to wait till the end because there's. But I'm glad she touched on it. I let me just throw it out there now. But wait on because I want to bring it up at the end. But to get it, you remember that Plato's theory of knowledge was that knowledge was a form of recollection, anamnesis. Plato believed in the reincarnation of the soul so that every one of us all already has some knowledge of the forms. Those are the source of all things in creation. They're archetypes. The, the fact that there are a thousand eucalyptus trees means there has to be a source for all of them, otherwise how could, how could you explain their existence? All things have archetypes. Plato believed those were the forms. That they existed outside of time, but man could grasp them because his soul is eternal. He already knew them. Okay. That's a problem for Christianity because we believe that this, we, we don't believe in reincarnation. We believe in the immortality of the soul, but we believe that it's brought into time by God. It's created. We have a beginning and an end. But according to Plato, um, all knowledge was a form of recollection. Now here's the problem with Plato. He believed that if we knew something, it was sufficient to cure us that seems to imply a denial of free will. St. Paul speaks against that. I do the thing I don't want to do. I, I don't do the thing that I do want to do because Paul is clear, knowledge isn't enough. We can know what's wrong with us and still struggle in our wills. Every one of us knows that. I know my deepest sins. I'm assuming everybody else knows your own. Trying to correct those sins, to answer your own will, to deny your will, Christianity offers something the pagans didn't know. That's a cross, an absolute crucifixion. The only way for us is through Christ and a cross because we've got a will. We've been asked to love. <coughs> to do that means <coughs> constant denial of our own will to get better. So one of the questions we're going to have to deal with at the end is how do we bring human knowledge and the will together? What is Boethius offering us on that? So... So there's a lot here. The book seems really simple and on the surface it's a, it really is an easy read, but it's also really profound. Yes. So. Um, any prayer request before we start? I'd like to make one for all the people <clears throat> that are in such bad shape since the floods the last couple of days. You know, a few people have died and people, everything they had is just gone. gone. So many. Sure. Glad to do it, Marcy. We got two Thanksgivings. Yes. Yes, go ahead. Thanksgiving one. Our daughter, Oklahoma City. No damage. Good. Oh, oh that tornado hit there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. That's right. She's all right. Oh. Thanks number two. I had a big day today at the end, so. Great. Great. I'm glad. Did you get a good bonus? 
I am, I think, less than a hundred dollars from the next tier. You get it. You'll get wow. it. You'll get it. Thanks, Don. Yes. You Thanks. Do. Thank you. Uh, uh oh. <coughs> did somebody did somebody Marcy, did see anybody absolutely accidentally take my notes here? Do you have my notes there? They were on the table. See, I'm Marcy, gonna, you get it first. I may not. All I got was two sheets. She always blames me no matter what. <laughs> That's all I have. <coughs> I didn't do it. Can everybody see all right? We don't. It is not. Everybody see all right? Yeah. Okay. Um, did you find your notes? Yeah, I did. Hey, Marcy, you're at home. Yeah. No, I hope she'll he forgive me for it. Yes. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, Great. Anybody else? For Rod? Oh, yeah. He's, he's going to be surgery on Thursday. Thursday. Who else talked? We had somebody else. Yeah. Mary. You mean John and Mary? Or something else. Sure. Say? Sure. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life <coughs> from you. Um, we know from this book, we know from this book, if, if we didn't know before, that there's nothing you don't see. You see the depths of our sins, um, and you still love us. You call us out of them. Um, you want us to free ourselves. A large part of that is getting past our pride to hide or deny or... Um, um, we can know about them, knowing them won't heal them. Without your grace, um, we're lost. I ask for a special grace for all of us, particularly in the work that we're doing together. Help us um, to learn to see more deeply into our faith, to, to see how rich it is to be glad for it, particularly all that comes from you. Um, to be strengthened in our faith, um, to help us go to the world, um, to make you present in all that we do, particularly with our minds and our hearts. Um, we offer a prayer of thanksgiving for Valerie and Chester's daughter um, and for the people who escaped the tornadoes last week. Um, I know their hearts are glad. And for Chester, for the all the good that he knew today, for any of us, for whatever good we've known this day. Um, we know from the book that you allow the bad to test us. Um, the bad things that happen to us when we think we get what we deserve all the time, we get so spoiled. Um, the suffering so often helps us, even though it's the last thing we want. 
strengthen all of us in our faith that no matter what we encounter, um, it takes us closer to you always. Um, ask um, for your special grace for Mary and John, the, the um, treatment that she's beginning um, for Rod. Um, be with him in surgery. Um, quiet Bob's heart. Um, help those who are close to him. Um, help console him in his struggle. Um, help us in all that we do bring you um, as fully as we can to everything we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> okay. Um, there's a bathroom just around the corner yeah, there. There's a bathroom here if anybody needs. Um, very, very quickly. Uh, <coughs> for the truths that I just wanted to um, quickly called to mind last week after we finished up the Catholic Protestant thing was um, remember that no corruptions no matter how bad can ever justify changing the dogmas of the church those dogmas are eternal they are linked with Christ and God Chesterton in Orthodoxy I, I think I've recommended that book to all of you I hope I did I recommend it to this group yeah it's, a, it's just a fun book it's an amazing book one of the chapters is entitled Ever Everlasting Revolution. I, I want to throw that term out to you because remember, since Christ is the founder of the church, there's a quality of infallibility to it. He's at the center. There have always been these um, threats to the church from Puritan forces who want to treat it as pure as Christ. The, the earliest um, um, heresy was called Donatism, which took a position is hmm? eternal revolution. Donatism was the position that unless the priests were themselves holy, they invalidated the sacraments. Saint Augustine fought against that. He, he knew that humans were fallible, even though Christ was infallible. The church, by nature, was weak, given to corruptions. We're humans. Um, the, our our life in Christ is should be, ought to be, with him on a cross. That's where we, the sufferings that we endure um, take us to him through sufferings. He's always there. But there have always been these um, movements in the move to try to purify it. It happened, remember when we were doing um, Dante, Peter Damien and Humphrey were involved in the same kind of controversy. <clears throat> Damien wanted the church to be pure and, and um, fought bitterly to try to help make it better. Um, Chester, I love the title of that, that chapter in Orthodox because what he's saying is that the church is a place in which an eternal revolution is going on. How could it be otherwise? If the roots of the church are in eternity, the church will all, hopefully should always be undergoing reformation because our roots are there. We're never good. We're never good enough. We never will be. We're, there will always be sins. But the thing we, I hope, I mean, the reason I'm saying this right now, I, I, that we should never forget is our, re, our roots are with eternity. That means reformations, revolution, should be ongoing in the church. If the spirit is working in time, it's constantly carrying forward. I've spoken about this. I mean, one of the differences between Eastern and Western art is Eastern art tends to stay in the past. Western art, Western music 
church going forward. You've got people still composing church music. Thank God. Hopefully the liturgy, I mean, you want the liturgy to be, certainly I do, you want the liturgy to be responsive to new art, the spirit moving in time. How much of that art is good? How much of it is bad? You know, it's a tough question to answer. But this idea of an eternal revolution, we should carry that with us because truly speaking, the church is, this is Fran O'Connor's term, the church is always under construction. How can it not be? its roots are in eternity. That was one. Tendency, basic tendency between Protestant Catholic worlds is um, the Protestant world tends to darken the world. All the Reformation thinkers looked at nature as corrupt, depraved. So it starts with a much darker view of the world. The Catholic sees the world as wounded. We're in sin. There's a darkness there. But there's always the logos. There's always Christ everywhere in nature. Take the logos out of nature because nature's corrupt. You take away one of the sources of refreshment. Suzanne's got flowers, you know, out in the backyard. Um, she loves flowers. I mean, there's nature, the beauty of it. You know, um, you can't come into this house and not see flowers in it because she loves them. Um, <coughs> Catholic means universal. It can't be limited by race or nation or sex. And finally, the idea of just infallibility, again, that there's an infallible element just because Christ is the, is the leader and, um, and vested that authority in Peter and the church. So those are th- things to hold on to going forward. Briefly, we went over a little bit of the history. Just one of the important things to keep in mind is this. Remember that um, Boethius is not even a century away from the sack of Rome. Um, I don't even have my. What was his? You guys have the. He was born in. God, I can't even. Sorry. Somebody have the dates? I had these earlier. Rome was sacked. The, the, there, were, um, there was a major sack in 450, another one something, 476. 476, Rome was sacked, and that brought what we know as the glory of Rome to an end. You know that Constantine moved the empire from Rome to Byzantine and renamed it Constantinople. That was a Greek culture. So Constantinople and, and Rome were the two major seas in the church at that time. And the power shifted to Constantinople. Um, Just, Justinian, who we met in the Perdiso, um, reconquered so many of the lands that Rome had lost during those conquests. And it, 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 re, it helped go, Rome regain some of its prominence in the world. But there's a great tension between the, Roman, the Latin world and the Greek world, between Rome and Constantinople. Boethius was trying to help settle differences because so many of the heresies were coming out of the East. Arian, Donatism, those, those are close to Boethius. Boethius, is, he was born in 477, just after that last conquering of Rome. So those are still recent heresies in memory to him. He's, he's struggling to reconcile different tensions between Constantinople and, and um, Rome. Um, and you know that um, he, the Theodoric, the king, accused somebody, caught somebody p- planning 
I think, to do harm to him. And he exiled that person, and that person accused Boethius falsely of being involved in the conspiracy he wasn't. So he's arrested, put in jail, and he's sentenced to death, and he dies. It's during his time in prison that he writes this. Yeah. One is exiled. Nothing happens to him. Sorry? Nothing happens to the one that was exiled. Not, not to my knowledge. I'm not sure. That's strange. Is yeah. The yeah, and there are a couple <coughs> of others, yeah. I think also because it's partly, I mean, to go to what she's saying, that that he spent his whole life trying to be virtuous, it it roused a lot of ire against him. People <coughs> resented him for the position. Of the, you know, and, and remember, the, the world is... The world is partly Orthodox and partly Aryan. The Eastern is still Aryan. Most of the Germanic tribes that come down are Aryan in nature. The, they, they believe that Christ was this human, this sort of noble human being, but not the Son of God. So there are these spiritual differences that are going on. Boethius is very Orthodox. Um, um, he created real resentments against him by, because of the virtue of his stands very often. He makes that clear here. Um, what was I going to say? Um, I forgot. Um, forgot. Any of those tensions are very much alive to him um, when he's writing. Um, when we finished last week, remember, Lady of Philosophy had come to him and told him that he had lost his way, he was going to have to go back to recover what he'd known as a child, what he'd lived. And that's, that's virtually what we did last week. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I wanted to just underscore before we go ahead is um, remember, this is so crucial to this. It, it, I'm so sorry Mark's here. I'm so sorry Mark's not here. Um, I've made this claim before. This was not planned. This was not on my mind in the choice of books. We did Dante and, and uh, Milton because of something Father said once. It just sparked this idea in my mind. Every one of these, uh, several of the major writers that we've encountered now, directly and indirectly, have, have written with the force they have because they were put in a position in which they lost everything. So we're, we're getting a perspective from people who have learned to turn away from the world, who realize the harm of becoming too worldly <coughs> and what happens when they lose everything. That happened to Socrates. <coughs> he was put to his death. It happened to Christ. He was in exile. He left his home to come here. His time here was in exile. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. His real home was heaven. He had to give up everything to come here. And once he came here, he had to give up everything here. He was crucified. So that so many of these people are, are helping to show us that the, one of the difficulties that we have is this worldliness that we carry, and it blinds us. It keeps us from seeing as well as we can. The action of the consolation is taking us through that. She's helping him to see that so long as he's attached wealth, office, power, fame, you know, all those things, that he will not, he will not recover his health. Um, so those are, those were the major things that we were concerned with last week. Now, before we go any farther, I want to, um, before we turn to, because the poems speak to this, 
Can you all pull out the Tate Wordsworth poem? Is there a copy? Is there an extra copy? That kind of... You know, it seems like all of the righteous people that we study, they all get killed by people who are envious and jealous. And yep. Kind of like... Yep. 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 Great gift to us. Painful one, too, I think. What am I looking for? The poems, Marcy, the, just the two poems. Um, I chose these rather than start Hopkins' The Wreck of the Dutchland tonight because The Wreck of the Dutchland is going to take some doing and I want to finish up with So, But both of these poems speak to the meaning of these writers. Don, remember, Dante lost everything. So... Socrates, Christ, in this order, Socrates, Christ, Boethius, Dante, Thomas More. That, by the way, this is not my choice. I mean, I, that wasn't on my mind. But it's interesting for me to look back at this now because every one of those men contributed something extraordinary to our world by virtue of having been put in a position where they lost everything and didn't despair. They all knew that there was something greater in life and that part of our problem is making too much of this world. Okay? So these two poems, very quickly, because they both speak to us. The first one, Wordsworth doesn't get close to this kind of toughness. If you've read Wordsworth enough, you know that there's this real, he, he loves nature, and there's this kind of soft quality to him. This is a poem that's not like most of his poetry, and it's one of the reasons I chose it tonight. The second poem is a poem by Alan Tate, who was a southerner here, one of the great agrarians, who was, a, one, I think, one of the best critics of the modern world and a poet himself. Okay? This is one of his darkest poems called The Cross. Okay? William Wordsworth, the world is too much with us. He's speaking with some awareness of exactly what we're talking about um, as it's focused in Boethius. The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that's ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn, so might I, standing on this pleasant lee, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. One of the great ironies of this poem for me, I'm sure you probably felt it, he is sickened by the world. Um, he would rather be a, here's the interesting, he's so aware at here, um, little do we see in nature that's ours. We've sold our souls away for the materialism of our world. We've sold our souls. We've lost the sense of nature. That was one of the great themes running through all of them. But the last thing that Wordsworth could do was turn to Christ. I mean, this is sort of irony. I, I'd rather be a pagan. I'd like to see Proteus... Um, you know, rising from the sea or Triton blow his wreathed horn. I'd rather be back in that world where at least there was something divine 
then in this, in, you know, this industrial, the industrial revolutions going on, this industrial world where human lives are being sacrificed on um, conveyor baits, you know, factory lines, just inhumanly reproducing stuff. That's mid 19th century, the cross 20th century Allen Tate. This is, I think, a frightening poem. Um, it, just hold on to this image that the cross will be at the center of heaven in the sense that something will image it with Christ because he's there. The image here is of Christ, or the cross, sorry, in hell because it will be, it will add to the terrors of those who want nothing to do with suffering or death but will have it infinitely reminded them, eternally reminded of it in hell because that's the one thing they rejected. So it's a dark poem, it's called The Cross. There is a place that some men know, I cannot see the whole of it, nor how I came there. The courage of this man just stuns me. It, it so humbles me to read this, just stuns me. There is a place that some men know, I cannot see the whole of it, nor how I came there. Long ago flame burst out of a secret pit, crushing the world with such a light the day sky fell to moonless black, the kingly sun to hateful night, for those once seen turning back. Once they saw the light, the suffering that it asked turned away. For love so hates mortality, which is the providence of life, she will not let it blessed be, but curses it with mortal strife, until beside the blinding rood, within that world destroying pit, like young wolves that have tasted blood of death, men taste no more of it. So blind in so severe a place, all life before in the black grave, the last alternatives they face of life without the life to save, being from all salvation weaned. They've turned from all of it. Stag charged both at heel and head, a deer in front and back who would come back is turned a fiend, instructed by the fiery dead. The images of everybody who refuses Christ, whether they know it or not, will become a feed, tearing on each other. Remember the images in Dante's hell, everybody was, there was no way in which somebody wasn't paired up with somebody else to work out their punishment. Um, okay, who eat this? If that isn't heavy enough, <laughs> okay. Um, does anybody want to take a wine break? <laughs> That's good. Good for you. Good for you. Okay. Let's. Boethius, Lady Flossie has just made it clear that riches, popular acclaim, political power, fame, bodily pleasure, true nobility, none of those are lasting. Wait, except true nobility. Because you know, one of the things he's criticized is, is inheritance. Because very often, um, in, in a line of succession, things will be passed down, not on the basis of inherent goodness, but in line, firstborn, the, the, um, the line of, of succession generally running through Europe in the Middle Ages was the oldest would inherit the wealth, the property, the landed estate, the second or third on their own. 
in the line of succession and primogeniture in the in the throne, the power would pass from the the king to his oldest son. Um, that's why having an heir was such a big thing to Henry. <clears throat> but we all know the horrible irony of that, because very often the third born will be infinitely better than the first. That that's a matter of chance. It's so it's so un, it's so arbitrary to have the first inherit the wealth when the third or fourth could be infinitely better in character. Which is, so he's looking at all those things that a, a, attract people and that they look at as the source of their happiness. And he shows two things. Um, one is that they're ephemeral. They don't last. So for people to attach their happiness to them makes them subject to fortune, which was the great thing. This, he treats as this fickle woman who gives her pleasure at her will. She gives and takes away. So anybody who puts his trust in those as being stupid, be, because you can't trust in them, they're not going to last. If man is to be happy, his happiness has to rest on something that's not perishable and that has an intrinsic good in itself, that's self-sufficient. There's only one thing that has both of those, that's God. Because God is intrinsically good and he's complete in himself. Just picture this, this because Plato had the same argument. If there's a God for Plato, that God had to be complete. There could be nothing else outside of him because if there were, it meant he wasn't complete. Okay? So God is being complete goodness in itself. If that's true, and it's self-evident, I think, then evil can't be something other. Evil has to be a privation, a turning from God. So evil by its nature moves towards impotence, weakness. It turns away from the source of strength. Okay, that's the place where we left off last week. If, if Boethius is to get healthy, he has to recover his sense of his nature, his ends, and his beginnings. His nature is to be happy. Man was made, that's his nature. God gave us desire. It was to be fulfilled to help us know a joy, a happiness. The only thing that can fulfill that is God. When we turn those desires towards lesser things, we always introduce um, a source of frustration into our lives because we will want those things more than we should and they'll make us unhappy when we lose them. That's all just sort of good sense. So, Okay, <clears throat> that's where we were. Any questions before we jump ahead? Okay, I, want, I would like, I'm going to spend more time reading tonight than I think I usually do, I hope, um, because this argument is so tightly knitted and so complex that I, I don't want to risk losing stages. Because remember, the, <clears throat> the whole point of it is, Boethius has got to recover his mind, what he's lost. And he's lost it because he's put his... Um, He's given himself too much to worldly things, even, even though his whole life was spent trying to be virtuous. He's lost it all now, and now he's got to learn to see that the only reason he's unhappy is because he, because he, because he put too much in it, too much vested in those things, now that they're gone. He shouldn't, if he, his mind would turn on God, he would be okay, but it's not. So he's whining and complaining and full of self-pity. If there were a bar around, we know, we know what would happen. Um, so let's turn to four. I'm gonna read. I just want to read a couple of passages and, and get to five. 
Can you get the lamp? Can you do it? Thanks, Doc. Um, I'm sorry about the light. Oh, Doc, turn that light on. Can you over the bar? For it's sorry, you guys, about the light. The other one. Can you turn the lights up, Doc? That's it's up all the way. Yeah. Sorry, you guys. Um. The, the question that opens book four is this, page 85. The greatest cause of my sadness is really this, the fact that in spite of a good helmsman to guide the world, evil can still exist and even pass unpunished. This fact alone, no, Reaver going up. This fact alone, um, you must surely think of considerable wonder, but there is something even more bewildering. When wickedness rules and flourishes, not only does virtue go unrewarded, it's even trodden underfoot by wicked and punished to the, um, in the place of crime. That this can happen in the realm of an omniscient and omnipotent God who with only good is beyond perplexity. If God is good and everything he made is good, and we believe that, thanks God. Um, um, how do you explain all of this? It doesn't what make sense. It's a contradiction. Sorry? What page are you on? 80, 85. Okay. I'll add this to this. Boethius doesn't say this, but it's implied. If, if evil gets punished, or I'm sorry, if evil gets rewarded, what are most people going to do if they see that's the way things happen? They're going to have no scruples about doing the same thing. I mean, what it will do is um, reproduce itself. It will grow. We've seen cultures decline, go to hell. I mean, all good cultures have periods of decadence where everything that was good about them, in large, goes to pot. So it's, it's not just that the evil get punished, it's that if that becomes a way, then it's easier for other people to justify doing the same thing, and cultures get lost. Um, <clears throat> On page 86, it seems to me she finally is, I mean, she said it a number of times, but here it's, it seems to she's making it explicit. She's shown that God is in charge of everything. She's shown that already in the first three books towards the end. And it's, it's still troubling Boethius. Um, she says in 86, You've seen the shape of true happiness when I showed it to you just now, and you saw where it's to be found. When we run through all that I think we should clear, clear out of the way beforehand, I will show you the path that will bring you back home. I will give your mind wings on which to lift itself. All disquiet shall be driven away and you will be able to return safely to your homeland. I will be your guide. That to me is the major theme of the work. From the beginning, she's wanted to take him back, to show him his beginnings, his end, because he's lost them. The pain of what he's gone through is so great that he's so great he's lost his way. So here the theme to me is made explicit. Her purpose is to take him home. So implied in this, there is a home. And philosophy is a way back to it. To help learn to see things as they are. 
Um, and and the words that I you know that I mentioned last week, um, bottom eighty six. Um, Wherever night is spangled bright, the orbit of a star it takes, and when the orbit's path is done, the outmost pole of heaven forsakes. It treads beneath the speeding ether, possessing now the holy light. For there the king of kings holds sway, the reins of all things holding tight. Unmoving moves the chariot fast. The Lord of all things shining bright. If there the pathway brings you back, the path you lost, and seek anew, then I remember you will say, my home, my source, my ending too. Once you get there, it's impossible to say, I remember, this is home. Because all of us carry it within us. Remember, I've said this before, all of us have this unconscious longing for the garden. It's where we came from, we want to return to that Edenic world. Suburbia is our attempt to get it. I mean, it's, it won't be, because everything here is passing, but we want to return to that garden life. We know that that's our origins, that the answer for it is not the garden, but the new city, the new Jerusalem. Remember John, I saw a city coming out of the hill. It's one of the most stunning passages in all the literature. If you go back and read that in John, the apocalypse, the revelation, I saw a city, you know, descending. It's a stunning image. If you read Revelation, you, you, you cannot but say, it's got to be something like that, that our home once the garden is lost, is this new kind of city, this glory, this beauty. The description is, there's no need for light in it. The light comes from the lamp. He's there. God is the light. There's no street lamps. There's no sun, no moon. Um, the light is from God. That's the home. Um, he says good and evil are opposite. He proves that. We already know. And if good is strong and complete, logically it follows that um, evil by its nature has to be um, its opposite, weak, impotent. And she even goes on to say that those who are evil are actually not human. If you look at Dante and the Inferno, you have to agree because if you watch it, remember we talked about this, um, a, a will without a mind or love no, motion, motion without a mind or a heart is a machine. It's just mechanical. What you see in heaven are people who've lost their humanity. They just repeat the same thing again and again and again you and mean again. Hell. Sorry, what? Sorry. You said in heaven. Oh, heaven, yes. Sorry. Thanks, David. Thanks. Remember, we talked about that, that image, that they're just fixed. They can't escape it. So, um, the image here Boethius has is that for anybody to commit themselves to evil is to give it their humanity. And one of the things that shows their weakness is they can't do good. They don't have the strength. They've turned away from it. So the more you, the more habituated you become to something not good, the harder it is to turn away from it. Um, go... Um, 103 Boethius has been following her fairly well up to this point she says on 101 
if you look truly at good and evil, you have to see that evil, she says, is the disease of the mind, just as the disease is of the body. That, that if people, this is, this is a serious question, it goes to this platonic thing, if you know Plato's belief that if, if you knew you wouldn't commit evil, um, that the problem was rec- recovering what you once knew, and if you knew it, you'd be good. That's, that's a problem I want to get to, but there's this element. She's saying here that people who commit evil do it because their minds are disordered. If they knew better, they wouldn't do it. So for Boethius to be as condemning as, as he is, is to partly show he doesn't still see correctly on page 101. This is why among wise men there's no place at all left for hatred. God says, love your enemies. However, we're uncomfortable with this. Don't forget to hear that. Because God himself says, love your enemies. Um, among wise men there's no place at all left for hatred. For no one except the greatest fools would, have, would hate good men. And there's no reason at all for hating the bad. For just as weakness is a disease of the body, so wickedness is a disease of the mind. If people would only get their minds straight, they'd have a chance at doing better. But they've lost their minds. By the way, I've been, you, you may, if you've read Chesterton's, the first chapter, first or second chapter, is called um, The Maniac. Because Chesterton's take is that the modern world is full of mental institutions in a way that was never true of the world before. Because we, we have, we, since for the last four centuries, we have been slowly losing our minds. And this is during ages and when we've tried to make the mind everything with education. Um, and if this is so, since we think of people who are sick in body as deserving sympathy rather than hatred, much more do they deserve pity than blame who suffer an evil more severe than any physical illness. Um, I think the the poem below may suggest Christ. Christ asked us to love one another, to love our enemies to the point of dying. Um, Going over to 103. She's about ready now to take a huge step because he's followed her up until this point, but then he says... Or Boethius says, um, there are hidden things that we don't quite understand. So he wants to go farther. To do that, he knows he's going to have to look harder. It's so, I said, but since it's a part of your task to unravel the causes of matters that lie hidden and to unfold reasons veiled in darkness, since I'm very much disturbed by this strange phenomenon, I do beg you to tell me your teaching on this point. She pauses. You're urging, me, you're urging me to the greatest of all questions, a question that can never be exhausted. The subject of it is such a kind that when one doubt has been removed, countless others spring up in its place. We're about ready to enter a place where most people don't go. The only way to check them is with a really lively intellectual fire. The usual subjects of inquiry concern the oneness of providence, the course of fate, the haphazard nature of our random events of chance divine knowledge and predestination and the free freedom of the will. You can see for yourself how difficult they are. Um, go down. When this plan is thought of as in the purity of God's understanding, it's called providence. When it's thought of with reference to all things whose motion and order is controlled, it's called by the name of ancients gave it destiny or fate. Because you know that the ancient world thought that things were destined, that there was 
that man was caught in this kind of wheel and could only fulfill his destiny, was already preordained. So right now he's asking her to look at those matters that most people don't deal with very well at all. Um, it's here that she gives this image of the still point. You know that you came across it um, in Eliot when we did the quartets. You saw it in Dante. Remember when Dante got to the back of the universe, he looked back at the center. When he saw with his senses, he saw the earth not moving with everything rotating around. When he looked in Beatrice's eyes, who was looking at God, he saw a still point moving so fast it was still. It was God at the center of everything, at the center of everything. That's why in the Eliot poem where he talks about the still point, you see it in a dance, you hear it in music, all works of art, assume it. You know, we went a ladder, I mean, all of those images. Um, there, there could be no life without a still point. Now that's, that's um, a pretty broad claim, but at this point she's gonna make it good. She's picking it up here. So she describes two ways of seeing. One in which things seem to be constantly changing and caught, and another that she calls providence, where God sees things in ways we don't. So she begins to talk about two different ways of knowing here, and she describes them this way. 105. <clears throat> Actually, the bottom of 104. A craftsman anticipates in his mind the plan of the thing he's going to make. He sets in motion the execution of the work and carries out in time and construction of what he's seen all at one moment, present to his mind's eye. I'm assuming almost all of us know this. When you're in high school or college, you know that you had to write an essay or a composition of music, or a, pot, a piece of pottery in an art class, whatever it was. You know that you had to do something. You had an idea in your mind, and you had to sit down and write it out. Now, how did that whole paper or that musical composition or that work of art, how did it take its complete form at the end if it didn't have as its beginning some idea, some still point, some intuition? I hope that's clear because I, all of us have struggled writing essays. You know, you've got an idea in your mind. And you start writing at some point you say, that's, no, that's not quite it. You know, and you have to get it back because you're trying to fill out that thing that still point, that intuition at the center of our soul. So that's her analogy here. So the artist, when he sets out, has this still point, this intuition. <clears throat> it's present to the mind's eye. We see it inside. Because we're incarnated people, we have to incarnate it. We have to give it flesh. We have to work it out. In the same way, God in his providence constructs the single fixed plan of all that is to happen, while it's by means of fate that all that he has planned is realized in its many individual details in the course of time. So whether the work of fate is done with the help of divine spirits of providence, or whether the chain of fate is woven, all these things, by angels, motions, whatever it is, um, one thing is certainly clear. The simple and unchanging plan of events is providence, and fate is the ever-changing web. So very often in our life, We'll look at things and we'll go back and say, holy cow. When you look at them, you see certain things happening and you have a sense that providence was, a, he was there. Even if we didn't see it at the time, something was happening. But when we're in those events, we're in a world of fate. We don't see their meaning. 
we just seem trapped in things as they're like Boethius being accused or losing a job or losing stock. Whatever good the loss of somebody you love doesn't matter. While we're in the midst of those things, we seem caught in a world that doesn't make sense. Everything, therefore, which comes under fate is also subject to providence, to which fate itself is subject. But certain things which come under providence are above the chain of fate. These are things which rise above the order of change ruled over by fate in virtue of the stability of their position close to the supreme God. In God, things are unchanging, eternal. There's no past, no future. It is. It's eternal. The closer we are to that, the closer we are to God's peace. The more involved in the world, the more part of turbulence and disturbance our lives. So he says, um, middle of 105, the inmost one the inmost ones come closest to the simplicity of the center while forming itself a kind of center for those outside it to revolve around. The circle furthest out rotates through a wider orbit and the greater its distance from the indivisible center point, the greater the space it it spreads through. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought close to simplicity and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distant form from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in ever stronger chains of fate, and everything in the, is the freer from fate, the closer it seeks the center of things. And if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it's free from movement, and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the, sta- um, the stable simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding. I hope that's clear. Reasoning means step by step. I have to work out this plan. You know, if I'm going to do this job, what am I going to do? If I'm going to teach a course, what am I going to do? If I'm going to perform surgery in the sky, you know, whatever it is. Um, reasoning is working thing, ratio, step at a time. Understanding means grasping it. You see it. Okay? Ratio is common to us. Intellectus, the Latin word is common to the angels because they don't have bodies. They see, they behold. But I think most of us have had, diff- have had experiences of both. We all know what it's like to reason, but there are times in our lives when we have these flashes and we go, holy cow. You know, you just see it. There it is. <clears throat> it's like that between reasoning and understanding, between that which is coming into being, step by step, and that which is between time and eternity or between the moving circle and the still point in the middle. That's where Dante got his image. <laughs> That's where Eliot got his image. Shakespeare has it. Is all that clear? Let me stop for a second. Is, is, every, is everybody okay up to this point? It's, 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 an, it's an easier read, but it seems it's terribly deep and terribly complex. So let me... Any questions or? No, I think the, one of the points you made about when you're in the middle of a firestorm, it's hard to see clearly. I use that word, firestorm. Yeah, it's a good word. The same thing. For sure, anything, right. It's a good word. Yeah. But good, I'm so glad you use it. <laughs> Remember Peter in the, in the boat? I mean, he had that, this flash, that's Christ. Jumps out. Suddenly he's in a firestorm. 
Where did his mind go? Terror. Terror. You know, think about, I don't want to, think about walking on the water or, you know, some of the amazing things that the disciples did after Christ left. Truly amazing things they did. Um, Okay. Um, She's coming to her conclusion here in four. Um, If we can begin to see that we're in time and we know that God orders everything, we know that nothing happens without his knowing it, even if he allows, he seems to allow evil to prosper and good to suffer. So he's seeing that more clearly. There are two different dimensions here that are important to keep in mind. Um, she says on the bottom one and nine, it's not allowed for man to comprehend it in thought all the ways of the divine work or expound them in speech. Let it be enough that we have seen that God, the author of all nature, orders all things and directs them towards goodness. He's quick to hold all that he's created in his own image and by means of the change of necessity presided over by fate banishes all evil from the bounds of his commonwealth. There's no evil in the presence of God. Evil is thought to abound on earth, but if you could see the plan of providence, you would not think there was evil anywhere. Interesting thought. If God is all good and evil denies God, there's no evil in the presence of God, um, does he even allow it in his way of thinking? Remember Dante in the Inferno was the gates of hell. It was outside of all things. I mean, people were removed from God, from being um, there. Why, why did God allow Satan to exist? We're going to get there. Okay. It's this whole thing of evil. <laughs> but here, just if, to follow her argument, evil is thought to abound on earth, but if you could see the plan of providence, you would. we're going to get there. I mean, that's, but this to me is an important stage because she's saying <clears throat> God's good. He, he created nothing that wasn't good. Or put it differently, there's nothing he will do that won't be good. We know that God wants all things back. He himself has said it. That means God is doing something to try to help people who are committing evil come back to him. So he's taking evil and making it, turning it to good. Now I'm assuming, I mean, I'm assuming what's happening here, I think the tendency, certainly in America, the tendency in most people is black, white, good, evil. What Boethius is doing is saying there are evil things, but they're not evil to God because he's doing something with them to change them to good. She's going to make it clear in just a second. But right now she's saying there's no place for evil in his his love, his understanding. But I see that you have long been bowed down by the way to this question. You are worn out by the perplexity of the reason and have been looking forward to the sweetness of song. So take a draught that will fresh draft it will refresh you and make you able to apply your thoughts more closely to further matters. This gives away the prosy meter method. Prose, <coughs> short song, prose, short song, prose, short song. Why? Because the mind needs rest. And in poetry it rests. In music, it rests. You all know that when when you go to um, um, uh, a symphony, you know, a, a, a night at, at the opera, or where 
Bach cantatas or, or the cello piece, let's say, you know that when you're listening, your mind's quieted. You're not, your mind is not going, a ledger, bank, winnings, losses. Listening to music, hopefully in a stage play, are the music, the, the drama, relaxes the intellect. One of the, I would say, one of the reasons for the overture in a symphony is to relax the mind so that you can enjoy what's about to take place. Because in that moment, the mind rests in whatever that thing is, that piece of music. So she's making clear now the reason for the posy meter, that periodically she turns to poetry because his mind needs to rest from the labor of... If you're following this argument, you know how complex it is. I think it's really hard to follow. It, I found it, it hard to read. I yeah, to it's... Stop and then go Yes, back. yes. You just, you have to and try to hold a chain hard. together, and it's hard to do. Yes, it yeah. is hard. So she says, here's a draft, take like a beer. Have a glass of wine. <laughs> Put on music. Listen to, you know, the rest for a minute. Um, um, and we're moving towards the conclusion of four on page 111. Do you now see what the consequence of all this we have said? No, what is it? <laughs> this is, so this is four and, a, four and a half chapters or four chapters through and Boethius is scratching his head. No, what is it? All fortune is certainly good. How can that be? Listen, all fortune, whether pleasant or adverse, is meant either to reward or discipline the good or to punish or correct the bad. We agree, therefore, on the justice of usefulness of fortune, and so all fortune is good. She makes the, she makes the point that God allows adversity to good people to test them, to help make them better. Because what will happen if they stay with fortune and they're successful? We all know what will happen. Hmm? We get spoiled. And proud, sorry? Autopilot. Yeah, isn't it true? I mean, we get proud. We yeah. pat ourselves on the back, say, look how good, I deserve all this. Yeah. Our pride takes over. God allows, so here at this point, she, she's saying all, all, all fortune is certainly good. And she goes on to say, he allows adversity to good people to test their virtue. Because what did, what did we learn about Boethius in the opening chapter? Everything he did was for the good. We know that. What was the irony? You saw it, Valerie. What was the irony? Took him down. Bankrupt, hmm? exile. No, remember he said, I, I, did, I did everything for the good to be just. Um, yes. He, he didn't care what people thought. He cared about virtue. What's he doing right now? Complaining. So as much as we try to be virtuous, I mean, here's the cross again for me. As much as we try to be virtuous, how much of the virtue we practice is really for ourselves? God lets this happen for us to see that not everything we do is as good as we think it is. There's the cross. And he allows good people to enjoy, or evil people to be rewarded. Why? Because once they're rewarded and they have that reward, they very often have to do, do good, good things to keep it. So they, even though it's for the wrong reason, they're motivated to do something good. So God's fortune is always at work. He's always at work 
trying to help the good become virtuous and the evil to become better. To help bring good out of evil. Stop and think for a This to me is sort of stunning. If God is good and he loves everybody, love your enemies, how could he be doing anything that isn't good even for evil people? It doesn't mean all evil people will work with him. I don't think so, but but it, can you imagine God doing anything that's not good? And if there's some people who are falling, Christ said, "Be merciful." I mean, we believe our God is a God of justice and mercy. Then everything He's doing is trying to help people. Are all people cooperative or no? But but it, I think the beauty of this is that she's making clear. There's nothing that God's doing that isn't good. That fortune, good or bad, always has him behind it. Do we see it always? No. She makes that clear. Um, 113. For you are set on the path of increasing virtue, have not come so far to abandon yourself to lights or languish in pleasure. That's what Carl said. Um, what was your word? Autopilot. Autopilot, yeah, that... We start taking things for granted, start patting ourselves on the back, say, oh, look how good, I deserve this. Our vanity goes up. So we, you know, we get autopilot, that's a good word. Delights are languish and pleasure. You are engaged in a bitter but spirited struggle against fortune of every fine kind to avoid falling victim to her when she's adverse or being corrupted by her when she's favorable. Hold on to the middle way with unshakable strength. Um, don't abandon, don't despair, don't get presumptuous. You've always got to keep struggling. The center of our church is this notion all of us are involved in this spiritual warfare. That every day is a struggle to answer the, the sins that we have within ourselves and the sins that surround us every day. Um, so here, I mean, she's just giving confirmation for what we believe in her. Let me give you an example. Yeah. My husband was dying of cancer. We owned a lake house, and he was in the hospital dying. We owned a lake house. I was called and told water was running out of the house. Down the street, water pipe had broken, whole bottom section was ruined. A few days after that, I got a, a we owned a rental house. A car ran through it, and an extended family member said this to me, God must have it in for you. And I said, no, God will have something very good for me at the end of this. Good, good, mercy. And guess what? <laughs> that and was my what? Job experience. Yeah. yeah. How beautiful is that? By the way, I don't want to lose this opening here because I've forgotten to say. I've made the comparisons with the Job thing with Boethius that he's facing exactly exactly what Job did. I, if you all know the Job story, everything everything is his, his possessions, his family, everything, and his friends. You sit, you did something wrong. Yep. That's that Old Testament legalism, yeah, and that? and everything about that story defeats that, answers that. That's not what God's doing. But that's that legalistic way of a, you know, the Old Testament. If somebody, if somebody was sick or had leprosy, it was a sign that somewhere in their family somebody had committed a sin. It's that belief that sin, that just, it makes sin greater than God's grace. 
But I, I've forgotten to say this, but I want to remind everybody, this is the Job story, okay? The one thing that I've not mentioned that I should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about the Job story is this. If you've read the Job story, excuse me, you know it begins with Satan and God talking. I could never figure that one out. Oh, but, well here, I mean, because what nothing happens that doesn't involve, I mean, actually it's going to wait on it because it doesn't involve Satan. Think about this for Christ and just for me. I, I just think to me it's frightening to see the, the way the modern world wants to deny evil. Deny evil and you give an open door to Satan or, and jo- demonic powers. Um, the Job story makes clear that God's allowing Satan to test him, to, to, to test his virtue, to see exactly how much he's doing it for him or because of his belief in God. And what, what becomes clear is Job's got all the answers. He's proud. I mean, we're seeing that he's gradually getting unmasked. He's done it for the wrong reason. For the reasons his friends say, no, because his friends are really unkind and unjust. They assume the worst of him. But we're watching Job get humbled. I mean, he loses everything. At the end, everything's returned and more. They were jealous of him. Yeah, or, yeah and envious and proud. Some yeah, envious, yeah. yeah. But the point I want to make here is that you can't really understand the Job story without seeing Satan in it. And I just want to take this into a Christian world. No no matter what goes on in anybody's life, let me try to personalize this and make it impersonal. If we look at our sins, honestly, it's hard understanding, because I believe this stuff, it's hard for me to look at any of our sins, my sins, without seeing them in those terms. It's God's way of allowing Satan or evil to work to test us. What's the test for us? How much we depend on Christ. Because if we keep depending on ourselves, what happens with those sins and our pride? If the Job story affirms anything, it affirms the importance of humility when we're dealing with losses. God let that happen. That's, the Job story makes that absolutely clear. Satan's at work. He's letting him go. Do what you will. Because his trust is in his goodness with Job. And we see Job learning. He, he challenges God. He gets angry at him. And, you, and finally God said, who, who the hell do you think you are? I mean, who do you think you are? And then he says, were you there? And you know, he has all those answers. It's just beautiful the, the way he makes Job aware. It's time for her to shut up, to be quiet, you know, that stop complaining. So even though the, you know, the model of this is the Job story, don't forget that in the Job story, God gave an open door on evil. He said, for the, I think the reason she's making clear here, he wants us to know ourselves. Why did he say to Peter on this rock and then say to Peter, here are the keys? And when he knew that Peter would betray him, Christ out of his mind, that's God. There's only one reason he could have done that. He wanted Peter to know himself. Who was to lead our church? The very man that betrayed Christ. Who, who loved him almost more than the other disciples. Jumped out on the water. Peter was always so impetuous. <laughs> and such, I'm assuming lots of us got down. You know, um, God said, 
here are the keys on this rock, uh, knowing he would betray him. P if Peter was going to lead the church, he had to know himself exactly this way. God's giving Satan a free will so that we can learn to see ourselves, how deep our sins are on the trust that we go to him. What's this all about? You're not going to get healthy till you go back to your beginnings. And right now we're stuck in fate, but we're heading towards providence. Okay? But right now we're seeing all fortune is good because there's nothing God allows that isn't intended for our good to help make us better. So, um, so he says, you're engaged in a bitter but spirited struggle against fortune of every kind to avoid falling victim to her when she is adverse or being corrupted by her when she's favorable. How easy it is it for us to be spoiled when things go well? How easy it is it for us to complain <laughs> when things go bad? Um, hold to a middle course. Um, um, interesting, on page 115, she's going to finish book four here. I love this image. Um, 114, his final labor was to hold. She's talking about, um, she gives these heroes. Who were they? Odysseus, Hercules, all these great heroes who had to accomplish these great things before they could go home. His final labor was to hold the skies, this is um, Hercules, on neck unbent, and for this latest feat, he earned a place in heaven as his reward. So she's saying, be strong, be firm. Know that God's behind this. He would not allow it if it wasn't intended to help you. I remember Mother Teresa's words when she went through that period of dryness. Where, what was her words? I wish she didn't trust me so much. I was had her. What? What was her words? God only asked me to do something that he and I can't do together. I just wish he didn't trust me. Me so much. <laughs> That's her awareness of how much, how important that was to her, because it was for Christ. Go now, ye strong, where the exalted way of great examples lead. What's the strength towards it? Humility, in doing whatever it is we're doing. Why hang you back? Why turn away? Once earth has been surpassed, it gives the stars. Where did each of the canticles end in the Commedia? The Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso? Back in the stars. Do you all remember? Should I read it? I don't have it. Every, every canticle, Dante was returned to the stars. Why the stars? Because he's back in the natural order where he belongs, but close to something transcendent, because that's our nature. We're humans, but there's something transcendent, godlike in every one of us. So, book five. I want to um, go to this. Is that it? Is it? Holy cow. Sorry, you guys, quick. Let me do this quickly. Dante wants a definition of chance in book five. She's, she, or sorry, Boethius is saying, so there's no chance? And if you've read the physics from Aristotle, you know that you have to be careful when you use that word. On page 117, she explains, if somebody digs up a field and uncovers buried treasure, you can look at that as a chance event, fortune, good fortune. 
or it's a chance event. But t you have to keep in mind, it's a, it's a coincidence, it's a coalescing, a bringing together of two things. The guy happening to till his field and the fact that somebody at another time buried it there. So in a sense, it's not a chance event, it's a, it's a bringing together of two things, but with an unintended purpose. So this is really important because if you think God is in charge of the world, and she's made it clear by this time that he is, there is no such thing as chance in the sense that all chance is just random stuff. God allow things to happen the way we've said. We're in a world of secondary causes. All things are caused. Drop something, the water's going to spill. I mean, chance just means an unintended effect. Now, the modern world who denies God say that everything's just random chance, that there's no, I mean, how they do that when there's so much order to the world, I don't understand, but that's the general understanding. She's giving a different meaning to chance, and it's important because it's consistent with her argument that God allows things to happen so that he can work on them. Now, that leads to this question. If God understands things, um, then he has to see things before they happen, so he foreknows them. If he foreknows them, apparently they have to be predestined. They have to exist by necessity. If God's foreknowledge means that hap things happen by necessity, it seems to mean that there's no free will. And that's the, the crux of the argument in, um, in chapter 5. This is the fuzziest part of the whole book. Sorry? <laughs> I think this is the fuzziest part of the whole book. <coughs> I think the whole book is here, page 125. But this, you will say, is the very point in question. Whether there can be any foreknowledge of things whose occurrence is not inevitable, there seems to be a contradiction here, and you think that the necessity of events is consequence upon their being foreseen. If they've been foreseen... They've already got a prior cause. They're necessitated. Um, while if there's no necessity, they cannot be foreknown. Because if you can't say that if there's no necessity, then things just turn out the way they're going to turn out. They're random. What kind of God, what kind of knowledge would have would God have if that's the case? It wouldn't be any kind of knowledge at all. I mean, what it does is reduce his character. So we're caught in this conundrum here, this, apparently this puzzle. If events of uncertain occurrence are foreseen, if they were certain, it only clouds opinions, not the truth of knowledge. For you believe that to have opinions about something which differ from actual facts is not the same thing as the fullness of knowledge. We all know that sometimes we think we know something when we don't. Our knowledge doesn't square with what's real. The cause of this mistake is that people think that the totality of their knowledge depends on the nature and capacity to be known of the objects of knowledge. But this is all wrong. Everything that is known is comprehended not according to its known nature, but according to the ability to know of those who do the knowing. Let me try to simplify this. Knowledge doesn't depend on the knowability, the intelligibility of something. Hold on, just give me a minute. Knowledge doesn't depend on the intelligibility, the knowability of something, okay? But on the mode of knowing. And let me make that clear. Here's a tree. Here's, here's an underwater plant. Here's an underwater plant. <coughs> Does a dolphin, a human, 
and an angel know that underwater plant in the same way? No. Is it clear? Everybody, each one of them knows it according to its own mode of knowing. The dolphin would only see a shape in matter, right? The dolphin sees a plant, yeah. A human would know the shape in matter because we also have bodies, but it would also know its species because the mind species is... How does it fit in our world? The spe- yeah, the species is actually the form. Remember, if you've got a thousand oak trees. What's the one thing all those oak trees have in common? The law of the oak tree? That's its species, its form. If we're going to know an oak tree, we can't just know individual. We have to know its form, what it is that makes an oak tree different from a eucalyptus. So humans can grasp the species, the form. Can a dolphin? No, because he doesn't have an intellect. A dolphin's caught in his senses, like a dog or a horse. Or Now, how does the angel know that underwater plant? Angels don't have bodies. They don't reason. They don't have ratio. They have intel- they're all intel- angels are all intellect. They just know. Don't they know through God? Yeah, but, but they have their own beings, so their mode of knowing is according to their nature. There's angels. They're incorporeal creatures. Is that clear? So knowledge depends on the mode of the knower, not the thing known. Because the thing is there, different creatures will know it differently. Now that's important for, because now she's coming to the, crust, the crux of this argument. 130. Mere sensation, while, mere sensation while any other kind of knowing has been given to animals that have no power of movement, like mussels or other shellfish. Imagination has been given to animals which do have the power of movement and which appear to have some will to choose or avoid things. Reaver can move in and out. He's got a memory. You know dogs. They can recall things. So they have memories. They have imaginations. They can imagine things. They get frightened. Two hours before a storm comes, he's already in the study hiding. He knows it's coming before the weathermen do. Um, Imagination's been given to animals. Reason belongs only to the human race, just as intelligence belongs only to divinity. The result is that that kind of knowing transcends the others, which is its own nature, knows not only its own objects, but also the objects of the other kind of knowing. Um, So, she says, senses know by shape. They know by um, by matter. Alright? This, this is too important. It's on that thing I gave you, but um, the senses know as a material shape. So a dog will know, we will know I know David by his shape. And I, I know the difference between David and Marcy because Different bodies, different people, we're all different to each other. Imagination knows his as shape without matter because imagination is an image in the mind, an image, not matter. So imagination knows an image, it carries an image without any matter. Reason knows him as a concept, a species. So if we're looking at a, a person, knowing a person, you, you, you know him through your senses according to his physical makeup. You know him through your imagination because you know you can go away and you can imagine him. You can image him in your imagination, even if he's not present. So the image is there with no matter. 
Is that clear? Mm -hmm. Senses know a thing directly, immediately before us, physically, in matter. Imaginations know the image without matter. Reason knows the species, the form. We can define a thing. That's what it means to define, to give the species. Intelligence knows him wholly. Okay? Now, why is this important? And what, he, what she goes on to make clear is, can senses grasp what the imagination go, knows? No. Can the imagination grasp what reason knows? Can the imagination go to a species? Can dogs go to a species? Can dogs go to the form of things? No. Hold on, Do I, I need to go back here. Senses know thing in matter. Imagination knows an image without matter. Reason knows the species. Okay? That is, to put it, reason, the mind, reason abstracts from all material conditions, it knows the form of a thing. That's what the mind does when it abstracts. It abstracts from the concrete thing. I can know humanity. So I can know Marcy as a human being, but I can know, also know our humanity, what makes us human. That's more universal. It's not concrete. It's not particular. It's a universal. Sorry, this is a lesson in philosophy. Just, is everybody okay? Can species, can a dog know, or can a, can a jellyfish know, have an image the way a dog does? Or a sea anemone, make it better, make something that has no motion. Can a sea anemone or a plant know when a plant does, take a plant that doesn't move. Can a plant know the way a dog does because a dog can move? Can senses know what the imagination knows? No. Can the imagination know what reason knows? No. Because the imagination doesn't have an abstracting power. It can't know the species. I, I need to slow down. What are your questions? Because too many of you are looking puzzled. Gita, come on, help me out here. What's the... What did you say about intelligence? That's where we're going. None of the lower ones can know the one above it. A sea anemone cannot know what an animal knows, a dolphin. A dolphin cannot know what a man knows, because a man has reason. A dolphin has senses, imagination. Um, okay? Can a human know what an angel knows? Can he see the way an angel does? Can he see the way God does? No. None of the lower ones can know what the higher ones, but the higher ones can know what the lower ones because they involve them. A human has got a power of imagination. He also has senses because he has a body. So a human can know all of them. God, who made them all, can know all. And Christ, who, entered a, who took on a body, knows them not only as God knows them, but now he knows them as we do. He's carried us with him. Why is all this important? Because we, we get very presumptuous and we think we can know what God knows when we can't. God knows all things. He put everything in order. He's very often doing something we can't see. So we have no business criticizing him any more the senses do than criticizing reason because the senses can't grasp something universal. I can know humanness. I can know Marcy personally, 
I think I've gotten to know her. I think we're becoming friends. I think we're close. She knows me personally. But both of us know this notion, this concept of humanity. It's more universal. Does the universal contain? No, it's, it's a universal. It's in our mind. It's abstract. It's clear. Can the senses know the universal? No. The senses have no business criticizing the reason because it doesn't know it. And can reason criticize the senses because it's not the universal? No, because the senses are particular. A dog can only know a particular, particular memory, particular person. So we're talking about levels of knowledge. I know this is philosophy 1A, but it's really important for the last step. And so what intellect is at the highest level? Yeah. Remember his distinction between reasoning and understanding? Reasoning is that which we use for things coming into being. Understanding is that which is. God is. Okay? And this relates to... Hmm? And this relates to predestination. Yes. Oops. So, predestina predestination doesn't mean that you don't have free will. That's where we're going. I mean, just because you know something's going to happen doesn't mean that they don't have free will to change. Right. That's his argument right now. That, sorry, her argument. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's where she's going. 132. <clears throat> so is everybody clear in those levels of knowing? Humans have the power to reason, and they can understand. So even, even if we reason, you all know that we can reason and come to a conclusion where we see the whole. It's like a Euclidean, we can work up to a proposition and then say, ah, I see it. So we have, we have intimations of that power. God has that power supremely. It's called an aha moment. Yeah. 132. Since therefore we've just shown every object of knowledge is known not as a result of his own nature, but of the nature of those who comprehend it. So let's say now, if we can tell the difference between the way humans know and God knows. To do that, she has to make a distinction between perpetuity and eternity. Page 132. It's the common judgment then of all creatures that live by creation that God's eternal. So let us consider the nature of eternity. Because we know, if, he kn if we know by the mode of our knowing God's in eternity, that's the way he knows. Just as we know in time. Right? And is in perpetuity time? Wait, David. <laughs> Billy, sit on him. He keeps <laughs> jumping three steps ahead. Um, whatever lives in time exists in the present and progresses from that past to the future. There's nothing set in time which can embrace simultaneously the whole extent of its life. It's in the position of not yet possessing tomorrow when it's already lost yesterday. No sooner are we here than that moment's in the past. Whatever was future is already here. Just like right now. I... I mean, I know where I'm going. I mean, I know where I'm going in this, but that future isn't yet. We're now. For each one of us, what's real is now, 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 now. But as humans, because we have minds, we can anticipate the future, not always correctly, and we know the past. Boethius says, every present moment is like an imitation of eternity, which is always present. Because we only know in the present moment, right? This is the only moment real to us. What's in the future is not yet. 
What's in the past is gone. It, we can hold it in memory. We've talked about it, hold, recovering what we've lost. But what's real to us is now, now, now. In that sense, Shakespeare's word, the present moment is a lackey, a servant to eternity, because every present moment opens on an eternal present. It's important for us to live in this moment. We're not supposed to live in the past if we had all this wealth, if we had all this happiness. Remember, Boethi said one of the greatest sources of agony is having been happy once. She dashes that because to hold on to that is to hold on to the grief of the past. You've got to let the past go. You cannot hold on to it. The past is no more. We, we can't. Eliot's before, after. It's easier for us, for us to live what was once, what will be. It's painful often to live, but we have to live in the moment now. That's where she's going, because that's where we meet God in that present. So, um, um, top of 133. In this life of today, you do not live more fully than in the fleeting and transitory moment. Whatever therefore suffers the condition of being in time, even though it never had any beginning, never had any end, um, um, extends into the infinity of time, as Aristotle was the case with the world. Aristotle placed, played a bullet believed in the eternity of the world. Because they couldn't explain how it came into being, they thought it would never end. So they thought of time as um, not eternal, but, but having a quality of eternity. That's where we get the notion of pantheism. Because since we can't explain beginning or ends, we think in time is always there like it's eternal, as if it's a god. So all things, all things have only as much meaning as they have in nature. I hope that was clear. Its life may be infinitely long, but it does not embrace or comprehend its whole extent simultaneously. Nobody in time can see the whole of time. Only God can do that. That's, that's the big thing, isn't it? We live on a timeline. We think of it as serial. Right. Every day goes by. Right, right. And what, what Lady uh, Wasby was saying is that he's a, God is at the still point, and all of time is around him. It's all there all the time. Right. Right. She's making the distinction now between perpetuity and eternity. Perpetuity is this, the world, it goes on. It's this infinite succession of discrete moments, say they go on. But anytime we're involved in that, we, we can't see the whole of it simultaneously. We can't contain it. Contain. Well, we're Eliot's. Here's the opening lines of the four quartets. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future. Time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If we're caught in time, there's no salvation. We can't see the whole of it. Our God entered time from outside and went back to it. He's the only one who entered it and can see the whole of it. That's implied in that line. Any mention of Christ? Absolutely not. Can anybody see it? Few people can. If all time is eternally present, if we're just in time, there's no way it can be redeemed. The only redemption can come from something outside of time that comprehends all of it. Okay. 
Those philosophers are wrong, therefore, who when told that Plato believed that the world had no beginning in time and would have no end, it was eternal, they're wrong because they're misunderstanding them. What they don't understand is perpetuity. Because a thing can exist in perpetuity, it can go on forever. That's not the same thing as eternity. Why does it matter? Here's the crux of the whole thing. Imagine God looking at a river. Now, he, this, by the way, we're, we're, we're running out of time. I'm not going to read. But the, the two passages I would have you read are on page 132 and 133. A guy sitting down. This is his, or running, walking. Um, how does she put it? A guy's walking. Is it a necessity that he, and I, and I see him. Is my seeing him walk, does my seeing him walk necessitate that walking? No. No. But it's a necessity that he's walking if he's walking. Yes? yes. Because the condition of his walking is he's walking. Um, is, and she makes a distinction between what she calls simple necessity and conditional. She gives us an example of simple necessity, all men are mortal. Can man change that by his free will? No. no. Can a man be a man without mortality? No. Christ even died. Came into it though. It's a necessity. That's a simple necessity. Is the fact that a man's walking necessary to his nature? Absolutely not. He can run. There's a conditional necessity. So does the fact that God sees something necessitate it? Now picture a God watching a boat go down a river and he knows where it's going. Does the fact that he sees something mean it's predetermined, predestined? No. Okay? But here's, here's the interesting. So I hope, wait, is that clear? It doesn't necessitate it. Any more than my seeing Marcy necessitates that she's there. Her she's there is a necessity, right? She's... I can't argue with that. I can't argue with the fact that she's mortal. Right? So the, the fact that God sees something doesn't necessitate it. The question is this. The real question at the heart of this is, does the fact that he foresees it take away man's free will? Now the thing to remember here, picture, picture a, a person on a cliff watching a, ro a boat go down the river and see some pirates there. Does the fact that that guy sees it necessitate them? Or does it necessitate what's going to happen? No, I mean, lots of things can happen. But he sees them. Does the fact that he sees them necessitate them, predetermine them? No. Um, but here's, here's the thing I want to add that Boethius doesn't. The fact that God knows, he, does God know in the past or future? Does he foreknow anything? No, he doesn't. God just sees at every moment. So there's nothing that he does that takes our free will away. The fact that he sees it doesn't necessitate any more than it. my seeing Marcy necessitates her being there. Um, if she chose to get up and walk, she can still do that without my determining anything in what she does. But here's the thing that Boethius says, and I just want, I hope that's clear. So this whole argument is a defense of man's free will and God's protection of him. She's already made clear. There's nothing that he allows that isn't for our good. But everything that he does is to protect our free will. 
because it's, it's the way in which we're most like him in image. We're made like him to be free. So he's picture an analogy here of somebody watching a boat go down a stream. Does the fact that that boat's going down the stream necessitate that it's there? No. But it, does it mean that that person watching cannot intervene in some way? Yes. No. Or let's say robbers. Say? Sorry? Earlier in the treasure argument. Right. There was no chance. There was no chance. It's haphazard. Wait, it's no chance. He he did that purposefully. He buried it purposely. What he describes it as is a compound of two separate lines of it. What he describes it as two two chains of events that happen to come together. Yeah, but the right. third person could be cha- not chance, but it could be haphazard. It could be me or you that find the treasure. It's not. Yeah, but not right. But the point is, let's say it doesn't matter if it's you or any. It could be you or Suzanne or Geet or anybody. It's that whatever you're doing at that point, you're doing. You're doing something that's a line of your own causation. You're right. walking the field or right, right. out for a night or whatever. That every one of us brings a sense of purpose to what we're doing, but very often you bring <coughs> these things together. It can lead, let's say it happens on a freeway with two things coming together. We look at that and say, accident. We use that word. <coughs> Some people infer from that all things are chance. What I'm saying is, what she's making clear, God rules this universe. He's the order of first causes, he's behind it, but he's created an order in secondary causes in which there are the possibility for things contingent that we call, you know. But he, the point that she's making is he's, he knows he's behind everything. He allows things to happen for the reasons that we've said. The reason I'm using this analogy at the end is because she's making clear that the fact that God sees something doesn't necessitate it. I'm trying to infer something. And I'm using a human example. Let's say I'm on a boulder watching a boat come down a river, and I'm far enough away that they can't see me, and upriver I see robbers. And I'm aware that they're heading. Does the fact that I see them, does that mean I can't intervene? No, it doesn't, because I can holler out or I can jump down. It's only my way of illustrating that the fact that God doesn't predestine things doesn't mean he can't intervene. That's all. I'm, and she's not doing that. All I'm doing is she, Lady Philosophy is making clear to Boethius that um, the fact that God sees something doesn't necessitate because she makes clear that God never foresees anything. Even as an all-knowing God, he knows where things are going. So like a man standing on a cliff watching a boat, he's the one who sees the whole of things in a way we don't. I'm using just a bad analogy. It's a way of saying the fact that he sees it doesn't necessitate. 
But we, we also, the fact that he sees it doesn't mean he can't intervene in some way. Sometimes he lets things go. Accidents happen. People die. But she's already covered that. There's nothing that happens that he doesn't allow for our good. I thought Marthy's, Marcy's example was good. Lots of bad things can happen to us. What he's saying, what she's saying is, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is a time of trial. This is a time when we're all going to be tried. For all the reasons we've seen, just when we think we've got everything under control, look how successful, you know, I mean, whatever we're going to do with it, or look how bad things are. What philosophy is doing here is trying to help us recover our minds, to understand the way in which God works in the world, in a, in a world in which strange things can happen. Here's my last question, because we're way past time. How does Boethius leave us on this question of suffering and justice? I, is it answered for you guys? Jeannie. I haven't finished reading no, you it, haven't. I have to admit. You have to read it, because it's a very, it's just a very complex argument. I've only read it to your half of You have to, if, if you guys have not read it, homework for next week. Homework. You, there's no way to grasp this without reading it. It's too dense. The mind is, he's taking Plato and Aristotle from a Christian perspective and synthesizing them. Nobody did that this well. And he's doing it in a, in a dramatic situation that makes it real. This guy's losing his life. He's going he's to be falsely, unjustly executed. So he's going to the heart of the Job problem. All of us suffer. And I'm assuming most of us think, I don't deserve this. Get out of here. I mean, what, she, what he's doing here is pretty amazing. She's helping him to go home, to recover his mind, to remember his nature. That, that so, here we are again, it's been basic to this work. So much depends on how we see. How well do we see? My contention for all these three years is we don't see very well. How well do we know? She's helping us to know, to recover our nature so that we can be better in whatever we go on to do. Was Boethius the first philosopher to write about this kind of problem in the way, in, the, mm. in as complete a way as he did? Plato and Aristotle could have never gotten to it because they didn't know. Here, this, that's such a good question, Jeannie. Plato and Aristotle could not have done this because they didn't know God the way we do because God was revealed to us through Christ. So Boethius has perspectives that the pagans could not have had. St. Augustine wrestles with almost all of these. Pelagianism, Donatism, he's taken on all those heresies. But nobody in the Middle Ages wrote a drama that synthesized so much in in a human way, dealing with a very human problem. Nobody did that but Boethius. And it's really great that we're reading. Are you saying that seriously? I, yes. I, I cannot, I mean, you know, I, I've said this to you guys, I think you, I don't know how seriously you take me, but um, that you guys are doing this is an amazement to me, because you guys are getting the, the best of Western civilization at a time when so few people get it, so few.
That means your burden's increased because you've got to do more. <laughs> what, did, what did she say? You can't rest on your laurels. Yeah. To whom much is given, much will be expected, right? We're going to, can we usually say prayer to end the evening? Can we just, can everybody just, let, let me say a prayer because it's late and I'd rather not wait until you guys leave because you're all here. Thank you again for the gift of this day. Um, what an amazing gift um, you are um, to have an experience of a light. It's one way to look at lady philosophy, a light, the, the truth, the love that's behind it. Coming to a man when he's lost his way and helping to take him home. What can be better for any of us? Um, let all of us be strengthened in our efforts to open ourselves to you. You're wanting to get us home again. All of us. Strengthen us in our efforts to give ourselves to you, to trust ourselves. Help us not to be afraid to look at our worst sins. Uncover them, bear them, knowing that it's a grace, that, that you are working with them to help make us better. If we deny our sins, it's our loss. We'll never come to the goodness you call us to. Give us all courage to do that. She's throwing a light on him, gentle medicine at times, and then it gets tougher and tougher. Tells him to stop whining, that he's behind it all. Our end is to be happy. Help each of us um, to attain that end with you and each other. We offer these prayers to end this night in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Oh. Doc, be sure you get a plate of that before it goes home. Do not let her. Do not let her take that pot home. Full. Next week. Next week, a quiz on the constellation. Quiz. Half-hour quiz on Boethius. We will be graded. Yes. Are we supposed yes. to? Do we read something between now and oh, then? Oh, you guys read the, the prologue to Canterbury Tales and the Knight's Tale. We're doing the prologue and the Knight's Tale. Prologue and the Knight's Tale. The Knight's Tale. Now we've got mine. What do you think, Carl? Yes. Okay. So you wrote, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
I told you this already. You want me to drop it off at your house tomorrow? Keep it, keep it at the side of the garage. No, no, no. I'm not going to. She couldn't get rid of her garage sale, which she wants to dump it on me. Do you believe this woman? I can't believe this. Some friend you are. Oh, could anybody, could, um, can all you guys help? Can anybody can take back the chairs? And I'd be grateful for the help. Those chairs go in the kitchen. So I want to know, how's this philosophy sitting? And how'd you, what'd you think? Is it good? Is it amazing? It's just, it's, I'm glad you. See? You do. Good, good. Good. Thanks to everybody for their food. Yes, yes. It was delicious. Thank you.
Oh, good. I, but I'll be here four weeks behind. 